Hello, darling. Um, this is Ash, your lovely, beautiful girlfriend. Um, and I'm not sure whether I will be, uh, you'll be hearing this after Christmas or your birthday, but whatever it may be, um, I just wanted to say hello. This is a podcast that I have decided to make for you. Um, I have no preparation, <laughs> so hopefully it will it will be uh, not bad. But yeah, I just thought you would enjoy it. I, I know that like my favorite thing to do is um, when I'm out and about or when I'm doing stuff around my like my room and my house is like to like listen to your voice and like especially when you send audio messages. I really enjoy it when um, your voice is just playing in the background. I just find it very soothing. And I know you love your po- podcasts. And um, although I probably can't compete with the binches, I can at least try. So yeah. Um, since I have, uh, since you basically like know everything that's going on in my life anyway, um, I wanted to talk about something new. So I thought I would teach you some biology, talk about some biology um, this time. I'm not sure what I'll do in the future, but I guess I'll find out. Uh, so yeah. So um, something I thought you might find interesting to uh, listen to is um a, a lecture is it's about a lecture i did about sexual selection and i thought it, it might be interesting to talk about um which is basically like you know what is it and also very interestingly why does sexual selection work a lot more strongly on males than on females um which is like something that is super cool so um i get like i've t- i think i might have told you this before but i think it might be um interesting to go through um is this thing called anisogamy and i'll just briefly go through it so anisogamy basically means it's the opposite of isogamy and basically it means that the two different gametes the male and the female gametes are two different sizes so you've got one big one and one small one the 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 big one being the female over the small one being the male sperm and this surprisingly is kind of thought of as the molecular basis for all of sexual selection and why we see sexual selection across the whole animal kingdom being much stronger on males. Um, and basically, how this is how it works. So think of a zygote, right? Like a, like a developing, uh, you know, embryo. What's, when is it going to have the highest success? When is it going to be the most likely to survive? Well, when there is the largest amount of resources and nutrients available to it, right? Um, which is why the best possible outcome, like the scenario which results in the best possible outcome is if you have two large gametes that fuse together rather than two small ones or one large and one small. So you might be thinking like, okay, so if that's the case, why, do, why aren't both the male and female gametes large? Well, once one large gamete evolved, with that being the female one, um, then the selective pressure was on for the one that could get to it and capitalize on its increased resources the most quickly. So rather than it being larger gametes being selected for, for providing the, the best success um, for the zygote outcome, instead, um, what was selected for was uh, what, whatever, whatever um, could like basically fertilize it the fastest. Um, and so for this reason, a lot of scientists call the function of the sperm almost parasitic because it hijacks like, takes advantage of um you know the female resources and doesn't provide very much in return in fact 
you could even argue that it results in a more negative outcome for the female. So that's anisogamy, two different uh, sized gametes. And what this means is, um, is that basically because the females are kind of reproductively offering a lot more than the males are, that the females kind of get to like pick and choose at their own, you know, expense. Not at their own expense, at like, you know, whatever, basically whatever male that they want. Um, and that means that basically female reproduction and reprodu female reproductive success is limited by um, their access to resources, whereas male reproductive success is limited by their access to females. So this is why we see sexual selection most often in males, because uh, the males are just getting whatever they can have access to, whereas the females are choosing, okay, what is the highest quality male? And, you know, which one shall I pick um, to provide this reproductive material so that I can have a child? Which is super interesting. Um, and yeah, and, and when we see experimental evidence for, for um, the role of anisogamy in sexual selection across the whole animal kingdom. Um, uh, for example, this is this thing that we call the Bateman gradient in biology. Um, and don't worry if you're not like if you don't like completely follow this follow this along because it's not that important. But basically, um, it shows that basically they combine like tons and tons and tons of metadata from across all kinds of different taxa, animal taxa, and they find that um, the more the the higher the number of partners of a female doesn't really make a difference to their total number of offspring. So, like, no matter how many males they mate with, they still consistently produce the same number of offspring. Whereas um, males that mate with more females tend to produce more offspring. In other words, it's kind of experimental support for the idea that, like, it is more adaptive and better for males to mate with more females, whereas it isn't, that isn't really the case um, for females. And um, kind of... Yeah, and um, kind of supports the idea that males are kind of selected to compete with each other for access to a limited number of eggs, whereas females are kind of like, you know, picking whatever males they think are the best. And uh, their reproductive success is mostly um, defined by the, the resources that they have access to rather than, you know, uh, the number of males or the quality of males. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and yeah, so um, because males kind of compete you know, with each other for females, this means that there's a lot of selection pressure for a few specific things which um, females might find, you know, more appealing and more attractive. So, for example, larger body size, um, ornaments or social competitive ability. Um, and again, we thought we see evidence of this in the animal kingdom. Uh, for example, bullfrogs, which are like the most creaturey little creatures that's ever creatured. Um, <laughs> they have like <laughs> they're so cute. Um, I, re I recommend looking them up, and if you just want to see like a cute little frog, uh, and basically we see that um, the higher the the male body size, uh, the better their like success in mating with females. Like the, the more females that that they can mate with, which is is great because it supports the hypothesis. It supports um you know the mathematical prediction. 
Um, and we know that this is due to male-male competition in particular, rather than female mate choice. Um, and the reason why is because in frogs, uh, male frogs have got territories, and um, basically females will just like pick a male's territory to spawn her eggs, and then he'll come and fertilize the eggs. So if you're a bigger bullfrog, um, then you can you know beat the shit out of all the smaller bullfrogs, um, and then you get the best territories that all the females want to come and fuck in. Um, and that's basically how it works. Um, on the contrary, so we've also like so we've talked about male male competition. On the con- in in addition to this, we have female mate choice, which like I, like I mentioned this to you a while ago. Um, but basically, it took scientists a really really long time to even recognize that female mate choice was important in sexual selection, which is crazy. Um, because to me, it seems you know like in my opinion, is more important than male-male competition, even though male-male competition is still really important. Um, but, like, I don't understand it. Like, what were they thinking? That they were just, like, like fucking whoever was, like, the nearest? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, because, obviously, they would be selected to maximise the viability of their offspring by picking the highest quality male. Um, but they kind of... They kind of, like... I don't know. It's really fascinating because some of them do it in very interesting ways. So, for example, uh, here's an example um, that I have in my notes. Um, In feral fowl, uh, which are kind of like close relatives of uh, domestic chickens. Um, Actually, I kind of want to look up a picture of feral fowl. I'm going to do that right now and I'm going to tell you what they're about. Okay. So they literally look exactly the same as domestic chickens. Um, oh, in fact, they are what domestic chickens are uh, derived from. So um, not just a close relative, like the direct ancestor. Um, and they are cute little guys. They're, they're not all like pumped up and massive like um, the domestic chickens are. They're kind of they're kind of skinny legends. Um, and yeah, and they have a and they have a very interesting mating system in terms of uh, female choice. So basically. The female feral fowl will um, uh, basically manipulate the males uh, such that she can ensure that the most socially dominant male is is the one who has sex with her. So in feral fowl, um, the most desirable males to females are the ones that are the most socially dominant. Uh, however, subordinate males, like like basically sub- more like socially submissive males, can just like basically uh, coerce, sexually coerce the female and essentially like rape her. Um, and can, uh, um, but the way that uh, we phrase this in biology is imposed mating, <laughs> which is kind of a it's kind of a nice way to put it. Um, but it happens all the time in the animal kingdom because um, if you're unfuckable, you know you've got to get your genes out there somewhere. Uh, so basically what will happen is uh, because it's very costly to resist this uh, imposed mating and it's also costly to directly like sexually solicit from the dominant males uh, basically what will happen is she'll uh, have a bit of an imposed mating from an undesirable socially submissive male and then she will give a distress call and the distress call is special because what it does is it just attracts like a shit ton of male chicken from like a, you know, from like a wide radius, like whoever, whoever, whatever male chicken can like hear it. Sorry, feral fowl. 
uh, they will they will come to her. They will like they love that shit. They'll just go straight there. Um, and then now that all of the um, nearby feral fowls have um, you know arrived at the situation, basically, if there is a more dominant feral fowl present than the one who is imposing the mating onto the female, then he will basically kick him off and resume the mating himself. Um, therefore, the female gets to mate with the most dominant male. So uh, basically, she just biases um, you know, the copulation success of all the males uh, around by manipulating the male-male competition. Like She induces male-male competition uh, so that she chooses, so, so that she gets to mate with the highest quality partner. So that's really cool, um, I think. So yeah, it's 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 interesting because you would think, uh, you know, it's it's quite a straightforward concept, but there's just so much theory behind it, and it's such a clever, like, adaptive, um, you know, uh, behavior. It's, I just find it very, very cool. Um, so yeah, and there's lots of different theories for why female preference exists. Um, for example, uh, some lots of people believe that it has come about. Uh, even though it isn't adaptive directly to the female. So, for example, um, maybe females are like more sort of receptive to specific sensory stimuli because of like hunting or foraging instincts, uh, and these are taken advantage of by males in order to, for them to gain a reproductive advantage. Um, personally, I think this is a bit oversimplistic. Uh, I think there's definitely got to be a lot more to it than that, especially although it might be true in some species, it definitely isn't true as a blanket rule. Uh, and the reason why is because like males provide a lot of benefits to the females like you know um for example in the bullfrogs uh he might be providing a safe territory he might be defending from predators uh sometimes he provides like nuptial gifts which are like basically like food gifts uh to the female when she's um like you know producing a little baby um and another theory on top of that is that the reason why female preference exists is because of the benefits to their offspring, not just in terms of paternal resources or care, but also because of genetic benefits. And you might think like, oh, isn't that, because I don't know, this is what I thought. I was like, oh, isn't that like literally the entire reason for female choice? Like you want you want to have the best genes to pass on to your, your offspring? Um, yes, but... Apparently, it's quite hotly contested. Um, there's a lot of arguments for and against, uh, you know, genetic benefits as a reason for female choice existing. Um, and, there's, and there's a couple of interesting studies that have, uh, you know, su both supported it and, and another study that has, um, you know, undermined it as a theory, um, which is just amazing because, like, it just... You know, evidence that disagrees with, uh, you know, genetic benefits to offspring from the males. Like, it just goes against, um, you know, what you would logically imagine, at least for me. So, uh, the argument that, so basically, the, the, the experiment that supported um, the genetic benefits theory, basically, this is what happened. They did it in the 1980s. This guy named uh, Mr. Partridge, which is just so, so. I just love when biologists have biology names. I just find it very, I just find it very funny. Like, <laughs> I love it. Like Fisher, like John Green, like also Ash. Like I'm just, I'm just named after a tree. This is very fitting. Anyway, so Partridge, uh, he made us. He had the study. It had two conditions. 
Um, and I'm pretty sure it was on uh, Drosophila, which are fruit flies, because uh, like something you need to know about biologists, they're so horny for fruit flies. All the studies are done on fruit flies, a lot of them, including Aziz and uh, Ellie, as you know. Anyway, so um, basically, th these were the two conditions of his study. Um, so basically, he had all these flies in one treatment. He was like, you guys are whores. You are not fucking anyone except your monogamous partner for life. Um, and basically, he, he enforced lifelong monogamy onto the flies uh, by like assigning them a mate. Um, uh, so these, these flies be fucking, but they're not whores. Like they are, they, they, they are godly wives, as uh, the benches would put it. Um, and in the other condition, um, they basically just allowed, like, they, it was like a little fly orgy. Like, basically, they, the, the flies were all allowed to, like, uh, reproduce with whoever. And then um, they had a uh, environmentally tough, they imposed an environmentally, like, difficult scenario on, onto both of the conditions. Uh, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't really say, but I imagine um, that it was probably that, like, you know, the temperature was higher, or something like that. Probably more, probably the most likely um, choice, because um, this results in thermal shock. Uh, and basically, what they found is um, th uh, the treatment where everyone is fucking with whoever they want. Basically, the condition where sexual selection is allowed to take place. In this uh, treatment, uh, the progeny had a much higher juvenile survival rate than the one where they had lifelong monogamy. And basically, this is really interesting because what it means is um being allowed to choose your part like be, the f it went in the condition where the females are allowed to choose their own partner based on whatever uh whatever traits or behaviors he may exhibit when they're allowed to do that um their um their offspring are more fit and more adaptive as a result um because they're better able to cope and more able to survive when there's a you know environmentally difficult change so that's really cool. Uh, that really supports the genetic benefits theory. However, there was another study from Holland. I wonder if it was Peter Holland, who is one of our lecturers. But anyway, that's, that's besides the point. Another study on flies. Um, and basically, very similarly, two conditions where sexual selection is allowed, another one where sexual selection is not allowed. And uh, the, he, he, over many, many generations... Then, like, allowed them to breed, um, you know, with the like with the monogamous condition and the fucking condition, <laughs> and uh, then he imposed another like environmental change onto them. Um, not sure what exactly it was, but anyway, in this case, the results were different, um, and it showed that flies adapted to the new condition, like, the, sorry, the new environmental conditions at the exact same rate both with and without sexual selection. So obviously there's conflicting because that uh, goes against the whole genetic benefits theory. So yeah, very interesting. Um, personally, I'm, I am a pro-genetic benefits gal. Um, just, just because it just makes more sense to me. Um, and I think this is a popular belief. This is a popular viewpoint. But you know, there's there's some conflicting evidence out there, which is which is just really really cool. And um, yeah, so one second, I'm just having a little look through, seeing if there's anything else interesting here for me to talk about.
Hello again. Sorry for the random pause. Um, let's keep going. So, uh, so while we're still on the topic of uh, sexual selection, moving on from the whole female choice thing, um, basically there are two kind of episodes almost like like stages of sexual selection that happen after the sex has taken place um which you might be like what like well, how can that be surely once they're fucked like that's done like he's he's like inseminate he's like fertilized the egg like it's his children now well uh not so simple because um basically uh in many species females can like have multiple different male ejaculates uh, inside her and she can just choose to reject them or um, she can just choose to abort uh, the zygote that's developing so there's comp- so there's not just competition between males for whoever gets to you know um, copulate there's also competition at the molecular level sorry yes at the molecular level like between the different sperms inside the female um, and there are female traits which bias the outcome of sperm competition which is which is so cool. So basically, it shows that male male competition and female mate choice um, are not just present between individuals; they're also both present between the gametes themselves inside the body, like completely on a completely separate level. Because you know, there's male male competition between the ejaculates, and there's female mate choice, which biases the outcome of the sperm competition. And I think that's amazing. It just it just shows how strong and um, Oh, I I'm smiling right now. Like it just shows how strong and um, fundamental like these principles are when you see them happening independently at the like at the at the individual level and at the molecular level in the exact same way. It's just very cool, very 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 cool. Um, so because basically because females tend to have uh, have sex with multiple males, it's very rare, to ha- not very common at all to have uh, monogamy in the animal kingdom. Um, so polyandry is what it's called uh, when uh, uh, females mate with multiple males, um, and what it means is is that uh, there's a trade-off in males. So he can either invest more in pre-copulatory competition, as in um, you know trying to mate with as many females as possible, or post-copulatory competition, as in having a more competitive sperm. Uh, and you can't, and you usually can't have both because there's a limited number of resources available. So you have to kind of choose. Um, so basically, what this results in is alternative mating strategies, um, which kind of, you know, is kind of strategies that will either invest preferentially in pre or post copulatory competition. Um, so here are some examples which I thought of very cool uh here's an example which um invests of a species which invests preferentially in post-copulatory competition sorry uh, sorry two different uh phenotypes of the same species which uh each more each phenotype invests in a different stage so you so if you're a blue sunfish right okay i have to do the same thing as the feral fowl i have to google them and see what they look like i think i already know but i want to make sure Oh, okay. They are they are pretty little men. I really recommend googling blue sunfish because um, they are really cool. A more exciting fish, actually, to Google will be the ocean sunfish, um, which are just like the most creatures, just absolute creatures. Um, 
<laughs> they're so fucked up. Anyway, <laughs> okay, so if you're a blue sunfish, they've got quite pretty markings. You can have two different pathways that you can go through in your life if you're a male. So you can go through the parental pathway, and this means that if you become you're you're a lot you become a large male and you have a territory, and uh, similarly to the bullfrogs I mentioned earlier, the females come and they spawn their eggs in your territory, um, and then they fuck off, and you fertilize the eggs, and then you undergo parental care as the male sunfish. It's one of the only, uh, you know, uh, phyla, uh, sorry, taxa, in like across you know animals that. Um, where the males are the ones that do the parental care for the reasons of, you know, um, agamospermy that I mentioned earlier. And the re- and we think that the reason why the males provide the parental care in all, all fish, most fish, is because of the associate, the higher association with the developing eggs, because the males have the territory, the females come and, you know, uh, spawn in the territory and then they leave. And then the males are kind of around the, you know, the, the developing fish and, a lot more so they pick up the parental care because they're more highly associated with um you know the offspring but anyway that's besides the point so you've got the so the first pathway that's the parental pathway um and because they're large and they have a nice territory where females come and spawn their eggs um uh just think for a second do you think this do you think this pathway of fish is in, is investing more in pre-copulatory competition where um you know you're trying to make with as many females as possible or in post-copulatory copulatory competition where you want to have the more competitive sperm just think for a second which you think it is um and if you were thinking pre-copulatory competition you would be right uh because you know being a larger fish having a big territory these are attractive traits to the female gouts um hence why uh they would choose to spawn in his territory and now you have the sneaker pathway these are different blue sunfish and these males are a lot smaller and um, they are, <laughs> they're trans legends because um, they basically, their whole thing is that they look exactly like females and they mimic the behavior of females. And the reason why is, honestly, it's JK Rowling's worst, worst nightmare because what they do is they will um, sneak into the male territories by looking like a female. And then they will basically just produce so much jizz. Like they produce like shit tons of ejaculate um, all, over the, <laughs> all over the female's spawn so that he can steal paternity from the parental male, the male who owns the territory. Um, Honestly, it's the bathroom problem all over again. (laughs) But yeah, uh, it's a clever strategy. And um, as you can imagine, this guy is investing rather than in pre-copulatory competition. He's actually investing in post-copulatory competition. Like he's got some aggressive ass jizz um, and he wants to share it with the world. So yeah, that is the sneaker pathway as opposed to the parental pathway. And these two kind of exist in an equilibrium, uh, kind of a stable, you know, frequency of each one. Um, And yeah, that's the blue sunfish. And another example, we have, uh, and I really, really like this example um, of uh, differing differing alternative mating strategies in the same species. Uh, is the side blotched lizard compulsory? Have to Google the side blotched lizard. Okay, so <laughs> they're kind of fun. <laughs> they're kind of fun little guys. They're just little fun little guys. Um, nothing special, but they just look quite cool. Basically, 
the Cyclops lizard comes in three different morphs rather than two. So you've got, um, uh, sorry, for, for specifically for males, um, like just like in the previous example. So you've got an orange, a blue, and a yellow coloured. And you can see in, it's one of the top examples on the Google result, image results. Uh, if you look on the underside of their chin, you can see that, um, you know, the colours are different. Um, but for the most part, they look pretty similar. So um, the orange coloured, the blue coloured, and the yellow coloured lizards all behave completely differently. And they all have different mating strategies, which, again, exist in a kind of equilibrium with each other. Um, which is super super cool. It's just like it's just like crazy that nature has just produced like these lizards that have uh, different colors corresponding to their different strategies uh, in in mating. So that's interesting. Um, and also the other great thing, which makes me very happy, is that in, in my opinion, the color that they are matches their strategy. So let, let's just get into it. So the orange orange colored um, lizards. Oh my gosh! Also one more thing. Um, they literally are alpha betas and sigmas. I will not explain further. You'll just have to ascertain which is which for yourself, which will not be difficult. So the orange coloured lizards, these are aggressive lizards. They have a very large territory and um, females come, they try and mate with them and they mate with many females and they offer reproductive resources for those many females. Um, the blue coloured lizards, these are less aggressive than the oranges. They have a much smaller territory compared to the oranges and they mate with only one female as opposed to many. Uh, and he will also offer reproductive resources for that one female as well. And now you've got the yellow coloured lizards. Uh, now, these guys, they don't listen to no rules. They stick it to the man. They have no territory. And um, they are like little sneakers, a little bit like the sneaker blue sunfish, where um, they uh, will go into the orange male's larger territory and basically just fuck his bitches. <laughs> like he'll just go in and, and like, you know, mate with the orange male's uh, females that live there. Um, and the kind of equilibrium and the balance that exists between the three morphs is super interesting because this is how it works. If the yellow ones are predominant, so these are the sneakers that don't have a territory and steal paternity from the oranges, when the yellows are predominant, the blue males are favoured, and those are the um, small territory betas that have just one female. And the reason why is because the females want resources, um, and if there are loads of yellows around, he's not providing any resources. Uh, so the females want resources, and then they'll go to the males, the blue males, and then the blue males will become predominant. And now when the blue males are predominant, um, then the orange males start to become favoured because uh, they're really aggressive. They can outcompete the blue males. And this may means that eventually the oranges will become predominant. And then when the orange males become predominant, uh, then the yellow is favoured um, uh, because there is a large population of females uh, because, you know, oranges be fucking. They have a harem. Um, and so because there's lots of females, the oranges can't defend all of them effectively. So the yellows, lots of opportunity for the yellow to come in and, um, you know, and fuck. Um, and then the yellow becomes predominant and then the whole cycle begins over again until you get you, you reach kind of a nice equilibrium. Um, so as you can imagine, there are lots of fluctuations in the frequency of the three morphs. So, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting example of, um, you know, alternative mating strategies in the side blotched lizard. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and yeah, that is my example for now. Um, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my thoughts on these this, these examples from sexual selection. Um, 
uh, I want to say my just my own thoughts on the whole thing, um, which I'm sure like you might have also been thinking, which is that um, kind of kooky coconuts, how the entire study of sexual selection is completely focused on the male perspective, like uh, alternative mating strategies and stuff. It's all focused on male, uh, you know, the male's fitness interests, you know, the ma- what the male is doing. And then the females are kind of like looked at as a kind of commod- a commodity or a resource to be won by the males. Um, and I think this definitely reflects the uh, massive, uh, you know, um, male dominance in the field of biology over the past like hundreds of years where, um, you know, the most prominent biologists of all like almost always been male um and i think and i think it is a nice example of how uh even today you know uh thinking that we're more progressive than we used to be we still suffer from um the same problems of the past because the same kind of systemic barriers are in place to prevent kind of uh a more diverse um a more diverse set of perspectives for scientists to like look at issues from um so yeah, I would like to see uh, a higher focus on female mate choice as a, you know, uh, a mechanism behind sexual selection. Personally, um, but yeah, I'm sure it'll happen. I'm sure it'll happen someday. But like for now, um, I'm quite content learning about the alpha betas and signals of the sideblotch lizard. Um, and I hope that you also enjoyed um, <laughs> also enjoyed listening to my little my little podcast. Uh, I hope it went well. Um, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. I, I really hope that this audio isn't shit <laughs> because I'm just I'm just on my laptop. I'm just like talking through my little microphone, um, and I hope you find it interesting. Uh, I know that I've spoken to you about some of these examples before, but um, yeah. <laughs> um, I listen. I'm no benchtopia, but you know, at least I have cool animals on my side, um, which I think is an area that they're lacking in. And yeah, darling, as I'm recording this, you are have just arrived today in your mum's house uh, for Christmas. Um, and um, I, I've, I've got to say, I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm a bit worried about you. I don't, I don't want to um, make a huge deal of it because I know that you're fine and at the moment, and I know that you are, um, you're having a good time, but. I just hope it stays that way. I hope um, I hope Rachel doesn't become rancid like last Christmas because I think I know that that was really bad for you. Um, and yeah, I'm so happy for you to be back in a like a safe and like familiar place. Like Ashburton's so beautiful. I'm I'm so happy for you to get to like keep in touch and meet up with all your old friends and um, and see Belly, little Belly. I miss her. <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, I, I it just 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 makes me happy to think of uh, when I when I, when we can have a cat together. Um, it makes me excited for the future with you, and <laughs> and you won't need and you won't need a podcast to listen to me ramble about animals. You can just <laughs> you can just um, you can you can you well you don't even need to ask. I'll just I'll just do it <laughs> naturally. <laughs> um, but yeah, Queen, I hope 
you have best Christmas with Rachel. I don't know why I'm saying this because you've already had Christmas with Rachel by the time you've, you're listening to this, but uh, yeah, I love you so, 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 so much. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this shitty little podcast episode. Um, uh, the first, I hope, of many to come. I love you, darling. See you soon.